Genre. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Miyamoto Usagi from the long-running comic book series Usagi Yojimbo by Stan Sakai. And joining us for the discussion is returning guest John Dorowski. Welcome back, John. Thank you. Very glad to have you on. Uh, For anyone who is unfamiliar with Usagi Yojimbo, which translates as Rabbit Bodyguard, this is a black and white comic book series created by Stan Sakai in 1984, which has published about 219 issues, but their character has also appeared in a few other comics here and there, so it's really hard to nail that down exactly. But it features anthropomorphic characters set in a world based on Uh, 1800s Japan. Yes, John? We should say uh, Stan Sakai has uh, created... About 219 issues, maybe a little bit, a little bit more at this point. So that's his output, right? If they've appeared elsewhere, that you know, that's not counting towards this total, right? Well, I think he's also done or like some short stories ar- and some other anthologies yeah. and other things like that too. Yeah. So like, if other artists have done it, that's not counting mm-hmm. on that number, right? Uh, yeah. So th- this has been entirely created, uh, written, and drawn by Stan Sakai yeah. for for those issues. I think he's also done the character in a few other spots as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but and the character has appeared in a few other things, which we'll get to some in the trivia. Uh, Miyamoto Usagi is a long-eared rabbit. And a wandering Ronin who gets into all sorts of adventures. We're primarily discussing a story called Grass Cutter, which follows a quest to obtain a sword of the Emperor that has been lost for hundreds of years. And uh, there's, it's just a really fascinating world that uh, exists uh, in, in this. It's uh, a lot of uh, th- think like folklore with mysticism, uh, and uh, the ideas of like demons are all present, uh, but also a lot of the. Um, you know, the, the tropes that you associate with the idea of the wandering samurai, those are all present, but it's all through this lens of anthropomorphic animal, you know, talking animal characters, uh, in feudal Japan. Yeah. So this is a very accurate comic book, even though it's this fantasy setting of anthropomorphic animals, Sakai has done his, and I'm assuming that's how it's pronounced. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, apologies if I am wrong, but that's how we'll pronounce it throughout. Uh, he does his research thoroughly on the history uh, if he's going to tackle a particular topic they'll read several books on it so like uh and it, like there's a wide range of topics so it, it tends to go between uh he'll do a couple of one-off stories then a big story and then go back to one-off stories um but it's like uh he'll do an issue on how they harvested seaweed uh to make uh sushi or the japanese tea ceremony he'll do an episode uh, issue showing that but he will be research it and show it accurately yeah and you can sense um a lot of that uh you know work but it's it's that kind of uh you know tip of the iceberg kind of work where like he's showing us the tip but you just have a feeling that he knows more than what's ending up on the page the, you know this is this is a you know a page or a, or a representation of a culture that uh his knowledge is so much deeper than what is actually just there for us uh, in order to tell this story yeah. So, um, do you remember when you first saw Usagi Yojimbo? I know we had the Usagi Yojimbo figure from the original Ninja Turtles toy line. We don't have it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do remember we had that. I did not know that was Usagi Yojimbo at that time. Uh, it was years later, once we really started reading comic books, and started, especially started branching out beyond superheroes, 
uh, that I started hearing about Usagi Yojimbo and eventually picked up volumes of it and recognized, oh, I had seen this character a long time ago and didn't understand <laughs> what that was then. Yeah, I definitely remember seeing the character in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon. Um, and then also, like you said, we, we did have one of those action figures from when we were we were kids. Uh, and um, I had no idea, you know, that it was anything other than, you know, one of those superhero animals like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, <laughs> you know? Yeah, once you got into the toy line, they they did anthropomorphic every kind of animal as a mutant. And you just, oh, this is just one of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, characters and then like no is this entirely other thing yeah i had no idea idea it pulled in from uh you know from this existing comic line uh which uh, i mean i guess talking some about the trivia usagi first appeared in a comic book called albedo anthropomorphics in 1984 uh which was published by a company called thoughts and images then fantagraphics featured the character in an anthology series called critters usagi was popular enough that he began his own titular series in 1987 and since then the series has been in mostly regular production there have definitely been some gaps but uh with four different publishers so fantagraphics mirage comics dark horse comics which had the longest run and it's now published by idw and uh, idw is also republishing sakai's entire run but but colored um which is a different reading experience like uh the volume that you gave me had a couple parts that were colored and it is it feels different uh i think they do the right choice at least in the coloring that's in this one i don't know that that's, that's what's gonna be done with everything it, it should be the same colors okay. throughout that's just who sakai works with where it's kind of like um the coloring of like a, a Garfield Sunday strip where it's very flat. Color. Like it's not super shaded or adding, uh, you know, lots of tones. It's very, uh, you know, singular color palettes. If that color is there, it's all that color the whole way through, which feels right for Sakai's art, even though the story is not, you know, a Garfield comic strip. It feels right for the, the style of art uh, that well, he's giving us. So we should explain since we're not in a visual medium here. Uh, the art style is cartoonish and in a good way. I don't want to uh, denigrate it in any way. Uh, Sakai is a master of the form. <laughs> and so, you know, it's anthropomorphic animals. They look like cartoons, uh, but it's often very serious stories. Uh, lots of um, never gruesome action. Uh, whenever they fight, if and people die, but when someone dies, it's not bloody. It's that they will have a thought bubble with the skull and crossbones float over them. And that's how you know they've died. Mm hmm. Yeah, and it's very clean, uh, crisp, like line art. Yeah. Not not tons of uh, you know cross hatching or shading happening. Uh, but it, as you said, like that's not. You know, we we have a different association with that kind of comic art, particularly with the idea of like, again like newspaper comic strip art is is one thing that I think this is somewhat akin to. Uh, but but the the story itself is just so so different than that and i think that disconnect or that that unexpected uh you know meeting of those two things is one of the the fascinating parts of usagi ujimbo and it's one that i i think it stops being as shocking as you get used to it like we said like this has been going for you know 40 years almost at this point yeah. uh so, so you know for long time readers you don't even think about that anymore but the first time you pick it up i, I imagine there's a little bit of a you know what 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 is this <laughs> right so uh when sakai started this in 84 uh, he had actually been working on a series previously called uh, it's something like Ground Thumper and Nelson. It's not quite the title. It's been republished, uh-huh. so you can't find this, um, which was also anthropomorphic animals. And it was in a medieval setting. This was uh, right at the beginning of the independent comics boom with um, 
Cerebus and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which is one I was going to mention. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles coming in a, a little bit later. Yeah, I think it was 84, um, so it's right in there. I thought it was 87. Uh, I, will, I will double check. You keep started. sharing your thought. I will go double check. Yeah. So, um, he, uh, and so a lot of these uh, independent comic book artists, uh, both writing and drawing their series, and they set out with these grand ideas of, you know, how long these runs were going to be, that they're going to do massive stories. Uh, and it'd be certain and planning a certain length. And so Sakai had planned uh, Ground Thumper Nelson to be a 3000 page epic. Uh, and it's would be about how ultimately about how man replaced the anthropomorphic animals as the dominant species. It was going to end with this big siege at the uh, last castle with all the last anthropomorphic animals in it. And he had planned about a thousand pages in the, these medieval characters were going to travel to Japan and he starts sketched this idea of this uh, samurai rabbit with the ears tied up like a top knot. And he just fell in love with that idea. <laughs> and so, and even as he was like still doing the last few issues, what ended up being the last few issues of that other series, he's like, no, this is the character I want to draw. This is what like, I want to know so much more about this character. Mm-hmm. And that's why he turned towards Usagi Yojimbo. <laughs> Uh, so I went and double checked, and yeah, uh, Eastman and Laird created Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in '84, so it, huh. right in there. And also, they were originally yeah. published with Mirage, which uh, is where Usagi Ujimbo was uh, for its second uh, run. Um, so that's probably how they were in touch with each other to have Usagi Ujimbo appear in uh, the, the oh. cartoon series in the late '80s. Yeah, and they did some comic book crossovers. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's absolutely how it happened. Yeah. Usagi Ujimbo is completely creator owned by Sakai, which is why he's able to appear uh, like, like all of a sudden be in a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic because he owns the rights. He's able to work it out. Uh, you know, as long as he works it out with whoever's going to be using the character, um, there's a lot more flexibility than when it's the corporately owned characters that are in so much of our media <laughs> these days. <laughs> um, and so Usagi Ujimbo has appeared in uh, anthologies, uh, short story collections, but by other com- companies or uh, as a character in some, some other creators, works um on occasion when they have been able to reach out to sakai and get that sorted uh because of this the character has crossed over the teenage mutant ninja turtles in comics in all of their animated series so every animated version of the teenage mutant ninja turtles has featured usagi ujimbo at some point uh he's been in their toy lines and um the teenage mutant ninja turtles have even been in an usagi ujimbo comic which i saw but i've never i've never read that have you read those issues when the turtles show up was it a special side issue so um there, so it, they've done it throughout the history. There was a special side issue in the last few years, but also previously in when he started, I think started at Dark Horse, they did, still did a crossover mm-hmm. issue. Um, Dark Horse, uh, a few years ago, started republishing uh, their run of Usagi Ojimbo as the Usagi Ojimbo Saga. And they did a volume of just the... Usagi Jimbo Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles crossovers, but that has also now been republished in the last volume of the saga, volume nine. So I have both of those. Oh, okay. Uh, and so, but that's also nice because it makes the entire series accessible. This is always in print. You can track down all the volumes. Um, though uh, the saga, they're going back to reprints and because some of the, volumes are hard to find now um i cannot track down volume seven mm. so if anyone sees that <laughs> in their local comic book shop you know reach out to us we'll see what we can work something out 
Um, otherwise, I'll have to wait for the next edition in a few years for that to come out. I never read Usagi Jimbo the comic. Like I said, I knew the character from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but I had not read the comics until you handed me these volumes. These are great volumes where it's hundreds of pages. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure how many issues are in one. I might be able to check, but it's so, like 600 or 700 page volumes collecting, you know, dozens of issues from the series. And a good price if you can find, well, now that they're reprinting them, you could especially start getting them at a good price. It's like $25 and you get these, uh, what is three of the original trades mm-hmm. in one volume. And it's um, a world that you just, Immediately, I could sense it was fully fleshed out and, um, you know, that all these characters had life and heart to them. And Stan Sakai knew um, who every character that Usagi Ujima was going to interact with. Um, he, he knew those characters' motivations and what made them be in the situations they were in. Um, so it was immediately compelling to actually sit and read it. And I'm probably gonna have to borrow your volumes cause it's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, some other stuff, uh, about, uh, Usagi Ujimbo. Stan Sakai has also created a set of miniseries titled space Usagi set in the far future with descendants of the characters from this series that is set in feudal Japan. Space Usagi has had three miniseries produced with a fourth miniseries rumored. Um, I also, this one delighted me. I saw that he also published a miniseries called Senso, uh, or I think it was Usagi Ujimbo Senso, which Senso mm-hmm. is the Japanese word for war. And it's separate from the main line of Usagi Ujimbo stuff. It's set, from what I could tell reading about it, about 20 years after everything that's happening in the main comic book series. And uh, because it's called War, this is a reference to H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, and Japan is attacked by the aliens from you know, uh, War of the Worlds. Um, so I mentioned that. Dark Horse had collected their whole run. The stuff before Dark Horse is also collected. Um, like, so you can find everything. The Space Usagi and Senso are in the Usagi Yojimbo Saga Legends. So that's a 10th volume, not numbered such, mm-hmm. but it's the separate stories. And is that where Senso and Usagi and, in space would be? Or Space yeah. Usagi, I mean? Yeah, Space so Usagi is the, just a great name for a miniseries. Like, I'm in just on the name. <laughs> yeah, so that's where those stories are um, collected currently. Yeah. You can, like, there's a big secondary market. You can find the individual volumes previously. Or the original like, issues, also, I'm sure. But... Yeah, they're also always in print mm-hmm. somewhere. Um, I do not know IDW's plans right now if they're going to continue with the saga format or they're just going to the individual volumes. I do know that it's uh, just because... Also, Sakai's pace. He's been doing this for a long time. It's, you know, he's not putting out as much, not working as hard. Uh, so instead of an ongoing series, it's uh, each storyline will be a mini series. Like a series of series, kind of the, yeah, the Hellboy so, model. Yeah. So even if it's uh, several one off stories, one shot stories, uh, that'll be a mini series. And then they might do a longer story as a mini series. And so it seems like that, that'll be IDW's format for the individual issues. Okay. Again, I don't, I don't know uh, their publishing plans for the volumes, uh, except that they will put out each main series at its own volume mm-hmm. to start with. Now, for a series that had been running as long as it has, it was impossible not to know it by reputation, even before I sat down and actually read some of these issues. And you 
were able to collect um, all of its award, uh, you know, some of the awards that it's won. So it's had over 20 Eisner Award nominations, which again is like the, uh, you know, the Academy Awards for comic books. It's also won six times, four for best lettering and one for talent deserving of wider recognition and one for best serialized story for Grass Cutter, which is the one we're talking about today. It has also received a Parents' Choice Award, an Inkpot Award, a Harvey Award, an Inkwell Award, and a National Cartoonist Society Award in the comic book division. Uh, you should mention that uh, as we said, Sakai does everything for Usagi Jimbo. He writes, draws, inks, and letters it. And he does hand lettering, uh, which is starting to become a lost art uh, that really deserves to come back. Uh, no, you know, you just that personal touch of hand lettering, uh, you really come to appreciate more and more. And um, he also letters Gru the Wanderer for Sergio Gones. Uh, another series that started around the same time he started mm-hmm. uh, Usagi Ojimbo. It's another one of those long-running series. Long-running that, independent creator-owned titles. Yeah. Unfortunately, it has not had that publication history where you're able to get access to all of it still. Um, maybe someday. Uh, yes. Um, and so it is this a phenomenal output for uh, Sakai's you know life and work. Like, it's, it's there in those volumes, and it's all him. And the lettering, like, it is impressive, like, how much... Uh, particularly like one character in this grass cutter, like it's supposed to be a creepy kind of demonic character and the way he draws the word balloons and the, the letters themselves, like just you hear the creepiness of the character's voice through that hand lettering uh, that he does um, where it's so distinct and, from every other character's voice. That will be important in the story as we will, <laughs> we'll see. Yes. <laughs> Um, last bit of trivia, Usagi Ojimbo has appeared in several episodes of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, has been adapted into two role-playing games, two video games, a stage play. There was a planned cartoon series based on the character in the 1990s, but that was canceled after Bucky O'Hare and the Toad Wars flopped, though I do remember watching a few episodes of Bucky O'Hare. Uh, Netflix has commissioned a CGI cartoon series, Samurai Rabbit, The Usagi Chronicles, which um, sounds like it would be based on Space Usagi and not on the main Usagi Yojimbo series. It's going to be set in the far future and have a teenage descendant of Usagi Yojimbo. Um, Which, if it is based on Space Usagi, why is it called Samurai Rabbit? Just call it Space Usagi. (laughs) The Samurai Rabbit Chronicles. Just switch some of those words around. Yeah. For me right now, it's a wait and see because... I'm not sure CGI is the right format. Yeah, it really feels like traditional cartooning is what would fit the style of Sakai's yeah. art that's in these volumes. And I know traditional cartooning would work because you have all the story right there. Mm-hmm. You just need to take those character <laughs> designs. Um, but I do not have the money to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, we will not be producing that as much as we would watch it. Well, before we move on to the plot summary, we want to thank you for downloading this episode, and we want to uh, especially thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. Now, John, you wrote the summary, so I'll go ahead and let you read that this as I was reading these issues, I thought this is a trickier summary and you had already volunteered to write the summary. And I was very glad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's, part of why it's tricky is this is coming 10 years into the run and you have a, a lot of characters that have been developed that already have these pre-existing relationships that for you are jumping into. Um, and also it is 
set in Japanese history. And so you have to have that context. So I'm going to give some context in some of the characters before I get into the actual summary. So this is set during the Edo period of the Tokugawa Shogunate. Um, the Shogunate is the hereditary, hereditary military dictatorship of Japan from the 12th, late 12th century through the 19th century. Um, to give you a bit of context. So this is going to actually take place in 1605. It refers to a specific event that places it that year. So this is contemporary with Shakespeare uh, and beginning of colonizing the United States. So that gives you the timeline. I love this. Uh, I wish we, I, we need to do more things that have us give a brief history lesson. Like when we did uh, crash landing on you and we like, okay, here's the history of North and South Korea, and the demilitarized zone. Uh, <laughs> and you just need all that before you can understand the story. Uh, I just feel more informed from that one yeah. paragraph you just so, read, John. Yeah. So this is towards the beginning of the Tokugawa Shogunate. They've just transferred power. Uh, I don't know exact. I don't know the history of that, which is probably fascinating in and of itself. Um, but to give you a little more context, Joseph. So this is the beginning of that shogunate. It ends with Rurouni Kenshin. So Rurouni Kenshin is just after the fall, the end of the Tokugawa shogunate. Okay. Which is so. So this is like a two hundred year dynasty. Uh, three hundred, almost three hundred years. Uh. For any listeners so, who aren't long-time listeners, that was producer Andrew jumping in with a key question there. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> oh, I brought up Roni Kenshin. He had to jump in. So the shogun legally answers to the emperor. So they still have an emperor at this period and at, throughout. I think they still have an emperor. Uh, but the emperor has no real authority. So as Japan evolved into a feudal society, control of the military became tantamount to control of the country. The first Tokugawa shogun, Tokugawa Iyasu, is one of the three great unifiers of Japan and established a system to keep governors and samurai in check while also moving the capital to Edo, later Tokyo. Asayo was appointed shogun in 1603 and abdicated to his son in 1605, though his son was really only a figurehead as Asayo maintained the political power. Uh, but that's what gives us the time that this story takes place. It's uh, that that transfer of power is part of the is a plot point. Yeah, I remember a couple of characters having a conversation about about that and how it would it, it wouldn't be as much of a transfer as it sounds like. Yeah. Uh, Usagi is loosely based on Miyamoto Musashi, a kensei or sword saint known for his double bladed style and undefeated record of in 61 duels. The second highest recorded record is 33. So that's that's dominance of a rather significant scale. Mm -hmm. So here are the characters and a little of their background. Usagi Miyamoto or Miyamoto Usagi. After the death of his Lord Mifune, uh, he was serving a feudal lord during a battle with Lord Hikiji. Usagi becomes a ronin, or masterless samurai, and wanders Japan on a warrior's pilgrimage. On his journey, he makes many friends and enemies, and becomes a frequent ally of the young lord Noriyuki and his retainer Lady Tomei, against the machinations of Lord Hikiji. Hikiji wants to become the new shogun, which is also, that's an ongoing plot point. Uh, Murakami Gen Genosuke is a rhinoceros bounty hunter always looking for a shortcut to a quick buck. 
Though friends, he really knows how to push Usagi's buttons. Okay, this character appears on the page. Instant favorite. Like, I don't I don't know anything that you just described, but I see this rhinoceros who says he's a bounty hunter, and I'm like, I'm in. <laughs> well, this character should uh, be recurring as far as I'm concerned. He is recurring. And um, based on Toshiro Mufune's performance in The Seven Samurai. So there he was the poor person who found a sword and declares himself a samurai. Um, but one of his tics is he's always scratching himself. And Gen is always scratching himself. So that's the direct link. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, Samurai Films is a large influence on Usagi Yojimbo. Right. We need to do Seven Samurai on the podcast. We haven't done that one yet. So uh, next is Inazuma. When her beloved was killed a very gambling debt, Inazuma got revenge, resulting in Bas Bakuchi placing a bounty on her head. She now travels the land, violently protecting herself from assassins and bounty hunters. Sanshobo is a former samurai, now a Shinto priest. Akita, a former general who failed, who led a failed rebellion against Lord Noriyuki's father. He went into hiding as a farmer to bide his time until his forces could rise again. Years later, given the opportunity to rise against Lord Noriyuki, he realizes that he loves his family and the simple life more than revenge. And lastly, we have Jay, a possessed man who believes himself to be an emissary of the gods sent to eradicate evil, which basically means everyone. He believes that if he kills Usagi, he will be able to ascend to the realm of the gods. The only soul he has found who is without evil is a young girl named Keiko, who is now his traveling companion. And so this is the character you were talking about earlier with that weird lettering that just looks sinister. Uh... He has the empty eyes. Uh, everything about him screams evil. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really a tribute to Sakai's art because it's so much of it is this simple, clean line drawing, which I, when I say simple, I don't want that to sound in any way derogatory. He's like he said, he's a master. He knows what he's doing. But the the way uh, how did you say the character's name? Jay? Jay, because Jay. it is a pun. So in Japanese, you address someone with honorifics uh, and one of those uh, a little uh, suffix you put on the end of the name to denote a rank or what your relationship to him is. Mm -hmm. So one of the honor most common honorifics is San, right. S-A-N. So he was Jason or Jason from Friday the 13th. Okay. Uh, Jay. <laughs> so that, it, that's where that name comes from. Uh, like just the way the character is drawn, like it is legitimately creepy. And the way the word blue and the letters, like it actually feels like you're hearing a hiss as your eyes are reading this text on the page. Yeah, uh, they describe it as a, a voice from the grave. Mm hmm. And so just uh, I, I do want to make sure we highlight that that part of, uh, you know, the artistry here. All right. So on to Grasscutter, which, uh, as we said, won the um, Eisner Award. So we open very simply with the birth of the gods and the creation of the universe uh, and the creation of the Japanese archipelago. One of the deities, or kami, Sasuno-o, defeats an eight-headed serpent and finds a sword in the serpent's tail. He gives the sword to Amaratsu, goddess of the rising sun, who gives it to her children who form the imperial line of Japan. Many years later, Prince Yamato Dake is betrayed during a hunt when his enemies trap him by setting a field on fire. Yamato Dake uses the sword to furiously cut the grass 
to create a fire break and then uses the wind created by swinging the sword to send the fire back at his betrayers. He renames the sword Kusanagi no Surugu, Surugi, or Grasscutter. The sword, along with the sacred jewel and star hand mirror, become the three sacred treasures of the Imperial Regalia of Japan. In 1185, during the final battle of the Genpei War between the Taira or Heike and Minamoto or Genji clans, the losing Taira Emperor commits ritual suicide by jumping into the sea with Grasscutter. The Minamoto are able to recover the jewel and the mirror and establish the shogunate, but the sword remains lost with a replica placed at the Atsuta Shrine. Now, in present day, in the present day, Jay slays a feudal, a feudal lord's procession and a band of the bandit Hosuke's men. Gen attempts to claim the reward for the bandits, but is then arrested. While arrested, he spots Inazuma, who has a bounty on her head. Usage is at the coast where the final battle of the Genpei War took place when an earthquake strikes. The shogun plans to step down, allowing his son to ascend and therefore, thereby establish a hereditary shogunate. But Kotetsu of the Conspiracy of Eight plans to use this opportunity to, with the help of the rich witch Ryoko, recover the grasscutter blade and reestablish the emperor as the true ruler, with Kotetsu, Kotetsu controlling the emperor. When the police realize they can claim the reward for killing the bandits, they set Gen free, who then tracks Inazuma to a hot spring. Inazuma is close to defeating Gen when she slips and hits her head. But Hosuke's men arrive, also seeking the bounty on Inazuma, and she escapes with while Gen battles the bandits. The wounded Inazuma is rescued by Jay and Keiko, who feel that Inazuma has a greater purpose. Meanwhile, Inazuma dreams she is battling demons in hell. The witch Ryoko commands crabs to search the bay and find Grasscutter. Usagi, seeing the crabs acting strange, discovers the sword but believes it is a fake until he is attacked by Kotetsu's men. Gen also comes across Kotetsu's men and starts tracking Usagi. Kotetsu, fearing that Usagi will bring the blade to Usagi's ally, Lord Noriyuki, now plans to assassinate the young lord using his spy in Noriyuki's court. Lord Noriyuki travels to show fealty to the new shogunate, but his, late, his retainer, Lady Tomoe, questions Counselor Aramure, it's a lot of names, <laughs> as to why they are traveling so slow and why he sent most of the soldiers ahead when they are then attacked by assassins. Tomoe escapes with Norda Yuki, though the young lord is wounded in the shoulder. Jay and Keiko drop Inazuma off at the priest Shansobo's shrine for further medical aid, though Shansobo is chilled by the evil he feels from Jay. Usagi realizes he is carrying the real grass cutter and ponders how to prevent it from being used as a political tool when he is attacked by Ryoko's familiar, the wild man Kitanamono, who steals the sword. Tomoe and Noriyuki seek shelter with a farmer, who happens to be General Aikida, a former enemy of Noriyuki's father. Through sh simmering anger, Aikida agrees to help Noriyuki to safety, accompanied by his son Motokazu. Gen catches up to Usagi as Jay feels the grass cutter call to him. Jay gives chase, separating himself from Keiko. Akita and Tomoe find all paths blocked by Arimura's men and attempt to fight through them, 
though they are hindered by Akita's old wound. Jay confronts Kita, Kitana Mono. Ryoko, sensing Jay's great evil, magically supports her familiar. When Jay stabs Kitono Mono, Ryoko feels her soul being ripped away and, in death, turns into a pile of crow feathers. Jay claims Grasscutter, but the sword does not turn black as weapons usually do in his hands. Tomoe and Aikida reach a rickety rope bridge when they are confronted by Arimura, who reveals Aikida's true identity. Noriyuki and Motokazu escape across the bridge, but when Motokazu falls through a plank, Noriyuki saves the young man. Aikida witnesses this and chooses to sacrifice himself by cutting the bridge, though he manages to hold on and survive. Kotetsu is driven mad by how his plan has fallen apart and commits suicide. Noriyuki begins to have a fever as they are caught in a pincer movement between oncoming forces and Arimura's forces hiding in a nearby village. But Arimura receives an arrow to the head as the approaching forces are actually loyal to Noriyuki. Jay confronts Usagi as aftershocks of the earthquake rock the forest. Keiko, searching for her uncle, finds them, but when an aftershock puts her in danger, Jay is distracted and Usagi uses grass cutter to stab him, causing a supernatural release of souls. Think Ark of the Covenants and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Inazuma wakes in terror. Sanchobo, seeing the strange light, goes to investigate and finds the wounded Usagi in Gen. When his calls for aid go unanswered, Sanchobo returns to find all his fellow monks slaughtered and Inazuma missing. A recovering Noriyuki offers Aikida a position as his advisor, but Aikida declines. However, he asks that his son become Noriyuki's vassal and be trained as a samurai. Usagi wakes and decides with Sanchobo that it is best for the grasscutter to be hidden in plain sight by replacing the counterfeit sword at Atsuta's shrine with the real one so that it will be kept safe without becoming a political tool. When Usagi asks about Jay's body, Shinsobo informs him that there was no other body. In the forest, the bandit Hosuke's men find Inazuma, but she is now possessed by the spirit of Jay. She now speaks in that weird font. Keiko finds Inazuma, and recognizing her auntie, they begin to journey again. That moment when the child says auntie, it just is another one of those, like, just you get a little chill. <laughs> Well, and then uh, when uh, the very last scene is uh, Keiko asking, where are we going, auntie? And <laughs> uh, Zuma answers, to hell, child, to hell. <laughs> and it's like they're walking off into the sunset. Like it would normally be, uh, you know, the placid, happy, you know, oh, the, you know, the child find, found the parent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which uh, uh, it, one thing that's so great about it is uh, you know, the child had been and innocent before and now all of a sudden you're like what is this child like we, we had not been given no context for the child and immediately like alarm bells and questions are being raised <laughs> yeah um and i will say there is a sequel to this grass cutter 2 which is about taking the sword to atsuta's shrine and mm -hmm. making that swap right well thank you uh for that summary one thing that absolutely stood out to me in reading uh again some usagi ujimbo comics for the first time and I didn't just read Grasscutter. You had given me a few others to help establish some of the other characters. Um, I didn't feel like I came to know Usagi Ojimbo so much as I came to know this world uh, mm -hmm. that, as you noted, is fabulously researched and uh, is, you know, despite all the anthropomorphic 
anthropomorphization of of the characters is representative of this real period in Japanese history. And the world just sings in in this. Um, But if I was like, after reading this, if I was trying to describe who Usagi Ojimbo is, I think I'd have a pretty short list of like, well, he's an excellent fighter and he's 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 a good guy. Like, I know he's noble and he wants to do right. Um, But that's. I don't know that I know a whole lot <laughs> beyond that yeah. about Usagi Ujimbo as a character, but this world just grabbed me and all these side characters, so many of the side characters that came to know better and understand their motivations, why they are the way they are, why, why they react the ways they do. Uh, the general that's now a farmer, I, I, um, what is his name again? Sorry. Akita. Akita. And I, I had you read the story that introduces him that gives that whole backstory. Yeah. He's such a great character. Um, and, and like, I, I'm fascinated by him and I found myself more, I don't know if it was more intrigued or at least uh, more intrigued by or more informed about some of the other characters besides Usagi Ojimbo. Mm. Well, I think I have some context that might help illuminate uh, Usagi Ojimbo a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has to do with the samurai code of Bushido. So with the establishment of the Tokugawa Shogunate, we are having a change in what Bushido means. And I will admit I have not researched this thoroughly. I haven't read a lot of books. This is a little light research from Wikipedia, but it, I think it gave me enough to say, oh, I can see what's going on now. Okay. Or see a little more deeply. So the previous slot style, uh, Sengoku Bushido, uh, its tenets included honor, warfare, weapon mastery, martial arts, and valor in battle. So uh, one of the stories I asked you to read was a short summary of uh Usagi's origin of how he became a wander, uh, wandering samurai, which was that big battle where he's his lord dies, and mm-hmm. you see a lot of epic violence going on there. Uh, one of the key things in those sorts of battles is so that your lord isn't dishonored. Uh, you need to, if he falls, you take his head uh, and keep that safe, which is what Usagi does at that at that battle. And so you see he grew. He grew up with a lot of these tenets of Sengoku Bushido um, about warfare and honor and uh, violence and what that um, try and be honorable in violence. So the new shogunate, uh, they had established a time of peace. And so the meaning of what it was to be a samurai was changing from valor in battle towards integrity. Uh, the new tenets included sincerity, responsibility, Frugality, politeness, modesty, loyalty, harmony, tranquility, and compassion. And having read most of the series, I can see, okay, that's what Usagi's journey is really about, is transitioning from this former philosophy to this new philosophy. And it's not a big moment, but you get a moment here that also illustrates that where uh, he realizes he has grass cutter, this incredibly important Mm -hmm. uh, cultural symbol. And says, I, you know, what do I do with this? I could give it to the shogunate uh, or I could give it to the emperor. But either way, that's going to cause war again. Yeah, he feels like so, the civil war is inevitable. Yeah. So do I want to go back to my old style lifestyle or do I want to try and keep this peace mm-hmm. that we found? And he decides, no, this peace is more important. So what that cha- changes the plan of, all right, what can I do now? And this is, you see this with action, reflected in a lot of the characters, Aikida. Uh, former general, uh, after his failed coup, coup, takes on this humble lifestyle of a farmer and realizes, no, this is the better life. This mm-hmm. uh, peace and tranquility I found with family is much more important than 
finding honor through violence. And, and I think there is, um, in contrast with other characters, you definitely get some revelations about uh, Usagi Ujimbo. So one of the main beats of action that he gets is actually saving saving someone who's trapped after an earthquake whereas so many of the other characters like their major beats are violence violence enter a scene violence enter a scene violence his is enter a scene save a child have dinner with that family yeah <laughs> and so it is um i i think i'm not trying to say that i'm completely in the dark about usagi Ujimbo. i just yeah. was more fascinated by the world that was being built up and Whoa. uh the intersections of these other characters uh, with their dueling motivations i uh, i think part of that is um he's only a small part of this story the all that stuff with lord nor uk and lady tomari it never intersects mm-hmm. directly with usagi uh you can tell they're part of the same story but they're not interacting with each other. So you have two parallel stories going on that splits the time yes. uh, that you have with each character in the story. And I definitely but, was waiting for that intersection to happen. It didn't quite land here, but you, with any, you know, I knew there were 200 yeah. well, issues that's a, of, that's also of, with, of it. You know, it's, uh, you have a thousand pages before this that where you see everyone have the relationships. You see Tomoe and Usagi interact and uh, Vordner, Yuki and Usagi interact. And so you can see their relationships. And so it's important here that like, we know this these characters at this point uh, and should have a vested interest in them. And so even if they don't meet up, we're, uh, if you're following the whole saga, you're fine with it. And yes, I was just jumping you right in the middle of things. Yes. Um, but I think if we discuss uh, some of the interactions of Gen and Usagi, that might help illuminate Usagi a little more because you, they form such a good contrast with each oh, other. Oh, yeah. And, and Gen, like I said, is, is great. I, I loved Gen. So Gen so, is the bounty hunter rhinoceros. So... What did you pick up on about Gen? I mean, he's pretty. Uh, one of the things that makes Stan Sakai a master is sometimes you, you know you can bring a character back in and you still automatically know who he is. You don't need to, the whole backstory. You can just be introduced to him and you're like, okay, I know who this is. Yeah, he's. Uh, uh, I, can, I don't need his uh, his story. I just mm-hmm. uh, yeah, like characterization is all there. Right. He, he's definitely more motivated by greed uh, and just kind of like impulse. Like, like, what is my immediate mm-hmm. need? That's what I'm going to go satisfy. Seems to be it. Uh, where yeah, like he, he's a bounty hunter and like uh, he has moments of debate of like, well, that's a bigger bounty if I go after that one. But this one's right here unconscious. Do I just hang out here and get this bounty or do I go? I'm just going to stay here. It's easier. <laughs> yeah. Know? So it's, what, what's the quickest way to a buck? Not what's going to bring me the most money. Yeah. And, what's and the quickest way to it? What is the need that's right in front of him is, you know, that's pretty much going to def- seem to define what his next step was going to be. There wasn't long term planning. There wasn't, um, you know, a, a, a grand motivation. It was, you know, satisfying his his desire yeah. for for money and, and food. And I'm going to assume alcohol, though I don't think it was ever <laughs> said. Uh, you know, you just get that feeling from how the character is being portrayed. Yeah. And so when they he catches up to Usagi and Usagi tells him, oh, this is a grass cutter sword. His first thought is, well, how much is it worth? Yeah, yeah. And why, why are you even dealing with it if you're not going to sell it? Because Usagi's like, well, I'm yeah. not going to sell or, it. <laughs> or if it's bringing you so much trouble, why are you bothering with it? Yeah, just, just leave it. <laughs> like, so, like other people trying to get it, give it to them. <laughs> yeah, so thinking about that, how would that then contrast with Usagi and eliminate that character more? Right, well, I mean, Usagi does have this kind of quiet nobility. Uh, and there is, um, in the midst of a lot of the the violence and the chaos that does encircle this world and uh you know that usagi finds himself a part of you do sense like a, a calm centeredness uh about mm-hmm. him and some so of that, that absolutely sense of harmony and tranquility yeah well but i am gonna say some of that may be me carrying in 
you know, my Western consumption of portrayals of Eastern philosophy absolutely like could be layering in some of my preconceived mm -hmm. ideas about samurai or about, um, you know, uh, East, Eastern meditation and those sorts of things. Uh, but that felt to me, at least, uh, you know, something I was getting from there, uh, how much of that was coming because of, again, those, those, uh, you know, my, my previous uh, engagements with maybe what are stereotyped or broader, uh, you know, less researched representations of uh, Japanese culture definitely could be an influence on, on me having well, that particular takeaway. I, I think it's also been an influence on Sakai. Um, he is Japanese American. Mm -hmm. He was born in Hawaii. Uh, so he is influenced by both cultures and is perhaps trying to express one to the other. And so he's really at this point of intersectionality of, I you know, like know so much about Japanese culture and want to represent that, but how do I make it accessible to the American audience? Partly a comic book form will help with that. Cute animals will help with that. Mm -hmm. um, but also, yeah, some of those tropes and cliches will come through as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it definitely could be the part that the, the tropes and the cliches are rooted in something and hopefully getting a more researched, nuanced version of it will add some clarity instead of just the the shorthand version uh, that, that we often get. But um, like you were saying with uh, the, the bounty hunter, you know, Sakai's not as afraid to use quick, broad shorthand that let you know, oh, I know who this character is, even though I haven't met this character yet. Like, I understand yeah. <laughs> what this one is. Yeah, but I think that the contrast between the two works really well. That's why they're actually do work as friends, even though they can annoy each other really well. Um, is that contrast that they uh, have same similar goals? They do want to do what's right, mm -hmm. uh, even if one's motivated by um, moral integrity and the others motivated by greed. Right. Yeah. Where, where it's a code uh, versus mm -hmm. yes, you know exactly. just uh, you know just just impulse. But I, I think the you know the rhinoceros is is within the that like impulse i think there's still a sense of right and wrong and and what things he wouldn't do <laughs> right so is there anything else that you want to make sure we touch on in a discussion of this series i think uh one of the int other interesting facets is how sakai explores uh the different classes that existed in japan at that time uh usagi jimo being a ronin he comes from the military class but since he's this wandering samurai on this pilgrimage, he's able to freely interact with people of all classes. And we see some of that in the story. And as you said, um, in the beginning, when he's, the earthquake strikes, he goes, helps a village and eats with the farmers. And uh, for some samurai, that would not happen. They would think, oh, I'm above this. But part of Usagi's humility is he's, you know, feel comfortable there. But then he's fine uh, when he goes and meets with Shinichobo, uh, a priest, or he's perfectly at home with Lord Noriyuki and the ruling class. Mm -hmm. um, and so he has the freedom of movement that not everyone else does, but that allows uh, Sakai to portray a wide swath of Japanese society. Um, and I think, that, I mean, I understand what you're saying about there being definitely like locked in classes, but a number of the characters are like like what is fascinating about them is how they have switched those classes mm -hmm. um so yeah well that's uh since we're just having this big switch in government and philosophy that was also a big ch switch in how some of the classes worked so the samurai class was different under the tokugawa mm -hmm. shogunate uh and 
the you know some transitioned well others did not yeah and uh for various reasons we see characters like uh the, the one priest we know was a samurai right yes. or at least a warrior i can't remember if it was definitely he a was samurai. A, uh yeah, I think he was a samurai. And then we have the ge- the general who's now a farmer, and we have the conspirators, uh, one of whom is trying to move up to become emperor. So, so like, there is... Or, no, control the emperor. Right. The power behind the throne. Yes. Uh, so so there's a, a sense of, like, moving within the the different levels is, is present for a lot of the characters, and that, the level to which that becomes, like, a defining characteristic uh, as far as their motivations, I think, shows how embedded or, uh, you know, their lives were within these these different class levels. Yeah. Um, and also that that conspiracy of eight, that they were turned to witchcraft, mm-hmm. uh, which point out that that's a common theme through this is, through the whole series, is that the folk tales and supernatural are all real, as they were for people in Europe at this time as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, basically in his wanderings, whenever Usagi's between towns, there will either be bandits or some supernatural creature. <laughs> and uh, like I said, like, that's the same for Europe at the time, where if you were traveling on the road, that w- those would be your fears, or bandits or something supernatural happening. So this is a commonality across cultures. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very recognizable trope for storytelling. Like, it's the monster of the week trope for mm-hmm. a lot of, like, weekly shows with the supernatural bent. It, you know, or even, like, going back to the, the Hulk series from the 70s. Like, what's he going to get into from one town to the yeah. next? It's always something. Yeah, but, <laughs> but it's also that theme of uh, a supernatural ex- usually exists outside of civilization. Mm-hmm. So when you're in town... Nothing supernatural should. That's where the political happen. machinations are. Yeah, and... that's where the political machinations are. But if you're traveling, if you're away from civilization, you don't know what you're going to encounter. Right. There's... And so we do have a weird crossover here, where the uh, supposedly civilized people, these uh, political leaders, are also using the supernatural. Right. Uh, and they're it definitely feels transgressive that they've yeah. turned to this. Like uh, and, they're, they're not all comfortable <laughs> that this is the route they're going yeah, on. <laughs> yeah. But that's also uh, illustrating this contrast between Usagi and Jay, that they are really the foils for each other, mm-hmm. where Usagi has a spirituality about him uh, or that he's trying to develop. Uh, Jay has evilness and demonic influence that he thinks is spiritual. Right. And um, so, what, oh, go ahead. Oh, go. Uh, so, like, they're both of them are wandering on these pilgrimages. Just Usagi's trying to save people, Jay's trying to kill people. Yeah. Uh, wh- one last thing that I want to make sure we touched on is it's, um, the, again, like the the clean lines of Sakai's art, which to feels a more akin to something that you'd see in a newspaper comic strip than the heavily rendered art that you often get in uh, mainstream comic books uh but it's telling this very mature complex story that has violence political machinations supernatural elements like all these things um what do you think it does to the audience or the reader uh to to have those like um maybe like the preconceived norms of this kind of storytelling what you'd expect which would very often with the animals and the and the the clean lines it would be like a gag you know it would be Mm -hmm. a you know this is uh more of a comedic kind of strip but that's not at all uh what you're going through usagi ojimbo so what do you think that does to the the audience reception well i think sakai is coming out of a tradition where uh they're using that style deceptively so this is you know he's coming out of the tradition of the possum character i can't remember his name. pogo pogo yeah yeah so the uh, pogo comic strip was very political 
Mm -hmm. um, but they hid it under this layer of cute animals in a swamp. Uh, and so you, you have kind of the same thing here where it looks deceptively simple, but once you get into the story, uh, you realize, oh no, this is a rich world, complex characters, uh, lots going on that uh, make it enjoyable in a different way. So it's um, partly, you know, being deceptive, partly that that's the style that Sakai's is suited for that he wanted to do this mm -hmm. um and so it, it didn't matter what story he was going to tell he was probably going to use cute animals to do it right and i mean this is the same period of independent comics where mouse is going to start being made by mm -hmm. art spiegelman which is going to use zoomorphized you know human characters into animals uh to tell the story of uh, of the holocaust where um it's like the acknowledgement of that this is a, a trick or a trope for the to, to embed meaning is very upfront in mouse whereas for usagi ujimbo there's never that kind of most postmodern acknowledgement and breaking of the fourth wall which is a key element of of spiegelman's mouse but i think it's interesting that we get two different black and white independent comics uh you know comic creators that are going to use the some of the funny animal uh, relationship uh, with, with what people expect with comics to tell very mature stories, um, you know, di diff think... different tone, different, different uh, themes and messages. Uh, but, but using uh, some of the built in relationship that audiences have with the comic book medium to disrupt those expectations. And I think there's some other independent creators from the eighties who were doing some same things at that point, mm -hmm. just, None, no names come to mind immediately. Yeah, I, th I think there was. Uh, I mean, there was a, a moment in the comic book industry that was uh, really rife for this this moment uh, where there was enough distribution and audience that it could be reached with that kind of experimental boundary pushing material uh that uh felt um you know again uh you know not not mainstream that this is going to be you know smaller press smaller audience uh more creator owned and individual voice uh to it rather than you know corporately edited uh from, from the mainstream stuff that allowed you know the, this just right moment in time where there was enough comic book shops that would order these things and and uh slightly older comic book readers rather than your you know your 8 to 12 year olds who would seek out those kinds of things uh that allowed for you know Stan Sky to make this kind of offbeat character that is unexpected that as we said is now almost 40 years old and and still making new content and has been adapted uh, you know however many times it was that we said uh it was just the right moment in the 80s for that kind of exploration yeah and i think along with that art style comes his particular brand of storytelling uh you don't get so much of it in grass cutter but many of the other stories you have where he'll just do landscape shots for a whole page or a couple of scenes and they're just beautiful. And uh, you, but you're also wondering like, well, what's the story going to be? What is this building towards? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you got to the tea ceremony story I recommended. Uh, no, I think that was the one in the other volume. I did not get that. That's uh, such a beautiful story, but it is so restrained. It is all about stillness and quiet and uh, this very ritualistic ceremony but there's such an underlying tension in the in the scenes that he brings because, oh, in this case, it's Usagi and Lady Tomoe. And uh, this is a couple of volumes later, but uh, you can tell they obviously have romantic feelings for each other, but they can never <laughs> express them because of their codes. And right. so this tea ceremony uh, is as close as they can get to being intimate. <laughs> and it's, like, it's just beautiful. Uh, it's so quiet and still and simple on just laying out how this tea ceremony works. But because of that storytelling and that tension underneath, it just is gripping. 
well, and just I do want to say with his the way he tells his stories, um, there's a couple things that happen with the anthropomorphic characters. One is that even though this is black and white, uh, if these were all human characters, it would be very easy to lose track of who is who. That's one reason why like superheroes all have costumes and symbols mm. on their chests. Uh, it's so that it, no matter what artist is drawing it, you know exactly who is who without getting lost. With these being different animal characters, it made it easier to follow the different characters. Um, Excellent point. And then also with uh, in one of the prologues where there's the sea battle, mm-hmm. in that one, some of the characters, like I had to go double check you know what character was what but then i also realized that he was doing a very good job of always maintaining one side of one group's armies they were always slightly facing left to right in the panels and the other sides were always facing right to left in the panels uh even if you like turn the page and and but but it helped me to keep oriented as to like which side was was which because at that moment those were all new characters to me i think they were all new for anyone uh and it yeah and that's the only time they appear (laughs) yeah i think it would have been really easy to get disoriented if he hadn't been so careful in thinking through how I'm going to distinguish these, not just by having them be different animal faces, uh, but, but, especially, you know, especially when you're, they're all in armor. That yes. looks, the armor looks the same. Yeah. You're but, not seeing their faces. Well, ones that like clicked for me, like, Oh, okay. He, he's actually being very careful. Like I had, I didn't have to worry about it again. Like I, I always knew, okay, this is this side of the army. That's that side. Um, so he, he clearly has like deliberate care and a mastery of the comic book form to help increase the clarity of the story. Uh, and, uh for however many characters you had to like run through to introduce like it was a lot of characters um it's impressive to me that he was able to make them so distinct in terms of their personality and their backstories but also how they get presented on the page Mm -hmm. all right well john do you have any final thoughts on usagi ujimbo uh just i highly recommend reading it um if you this is a an established enough series and also um, has been in print enough that I would imagine if your local library has any graphic novel section, you would probably be able to find some Usagi Ujibo uh, in there. Um, but as you noted, these um, if they don't recommend it to them. Yeah. These six or 700 page volumes that are being put out by is this uh, dark horse, but now IDW is going to be putting them out, I think, but they're they're So I've seen that IDW has both, their new the newest title but also going back to the original mm-hmm. which is before dark horse but they're doing it as the original volumes which will be 120 150 pages okay but they're they're pretty reasonably uh priced for the amount of content yeah. that you get so if you can find a and, way to get your hands and for on the it, story it's worth it yeah there's a lot of story in there uh it's definitely worth seeking out um, so that's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. You can reach us by emailing feedback at ProtagonistPodcast.com, or you can follow us on Twitter. You can follow at ProtagonistPod or at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Dismanit. And our Facebook fan page is Facebook.com slash ProtagonistPodcast. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. So, um, yes, uh, sorry, Andrew, I got lost (laughs) coming back to the script.